You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. Glad to see you guys. Merry Christmas. There you go. I feel like we're there. We're solidly into December now, right? It's coming. I think one of the most dangerous things that we could slip into in the holiday season is just to slip into what I would call casual sentimentality. It's a big idea, so early on a Sunday morning to wrap our heads around. What do I mean? Just the idea that, you know, we kind of hide everything in bows and gift wrap and lights and cookies. And Christmas is great and sentimental, but it's not enough to be sentimental at Christmas time. Don't you love these, these Christmas songs that come up? They always come up once a year, and like you sing them in December, and then you kind of put them on a shelf for a little way, and they come out again 11, 12 months later. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. It's kind of one of my favorites these days. How many of you? That one, it seemed like it got buried for, I don't know, decades, maybe longer. But it lives at that intersection of not quite sentimental. Not sentimental. It's very real. The lyrics, Then in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Anybody feel that? And then the response, the next verse, right? There's no sentimentality to that. I think that's a very accurate assessment of our world. But then, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. Gosh, so good. This morning, we're going to be talking about God is mighty. It's the second of those titles from Isaiah 9. God is mighty, but taking this idea from theory to practice, that's where this gets tough. Here's why mighty God is a hard one. Because we can hide behind sentimentality and just go, yeah, yeah, he's mighty. But you already know this because many of you live it. If he's mighty, why did the cancer return and the prodigal hasn't yet? If he's mighty, why didn't God prevent the divorce but allow the addiction? Why hasn't he answered that prayer yet, that that prayer that you've prayed over and over and over again? If he's so strong and mighty, why can't he lift a finger to help me when I need it the most? Do you ever... Find yourself thinking that? Sure you have. Those are the questions that we have when we come to Scripture and we come to Christmas. They're the questions that I have from time to time. This time of year especially. Sure, there's joy and there's fun and there's beauty and grace, but there's also heartache sometimes associated with Christmas, I think. For many more, there's absence and loneliness. Of course, we want God to be mighty and we believe and confess that he is, but we silently wonder, well... If he's not mighty when I need him the most, 
And then half out of reverence, half out of fear, we stop, just syllables short of accusation. Slipping slowly back into silence, retreating into a reluctant reservation. We want to say, Jesus, you're mighty, and I believe that you are. Look at all that you've done. But so often the only words that come out are, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So this year's Advent teaching series, the name hangs on a scant eight words from Isaiah chapter 9. Eight words, four titles, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Tying to our previous teaching series here, this is a description of King David's heir. This morning we're looking at the second title, mighty God. Mighty God, much more than two words just glued and clamped together. Mighty God is a personal promise held in a timeless tension. Is this king really worthy of my trust? Is he really worthy of my trust? I don't think that's an irreverent question. I don't think that's a disrespectful question. I think it's the only question. So here's where we're going to go today. We're going to take a look at what this title means, Mighty God, out of Isaiah. And then we're going to take a look at how Jesus fulfills that practically in our own lives. But first, a little bit about Isaiah. Who is he and what's he writing about? So Isaiah was born about seven centuries before Jesus, roughly about 760 B.C., scholars think. He was likely born into an aristocratic family with royal connections, and so Isaiah is probably like semi-upper class, if that helps you think about Isaiah. He lived in Jerusalem his whole life, so he's not detached, living on a cliff somewhere, writing in obscurity. He's in town, and he's known as a really good writer, really good speaker, cultural truth-teller whose strong words to the power elite are initially interesting, ultimately, though, very unwelcome. What's he writing about, Isaiah? What's bothering him? A little side note, I think that all good writers, gospel writers included, write because they're bothered by something. Turns out, God opens Isaiah's eyes to see something that absolutely breaks his heart. And the only way he can describe it is people lost in darkness. Last week, Pastor John, our care and counseling pastor here at North Canton Chapel, did a great job getting us started, saying that Isaiah lived and prophesied at a time of deep darkness for God's people. That darkness came in three forms. First, there was external darkness. Assyria and Babylon in the 8th century B.C., these neighboring kingdoms up the road, stronger, brash, godless, were knocking on the door of Israel, trying to take God's people down. Israel was afraid, and as is often the case, that fear drove them to places that were not really supposed to go, which led to the second form of darkness, internal darkness. When God's people got scared, they didn't turn to God, instead they turned to themselves, and they fell into the predictable pattern of following their instincts rather than walking by faith. They looked to morally bankrupt leaders. They looked to other gods. They got distracted. And not surprisingly, as is always the case when we do that, <laughs> they got lost, which led to the third form of darkness. And it's the one that Isaiah speaks to most directly, relational darkness with God. The fire that once warmed the relationship between God and his people has cooled, faded down to coals, and has now died down 
to ash. They were like that couple, you know the couple, sitting in the quiet corner of a tired cafe. They're sitting together, but they don't talk for the whole meal. They just sit and eat. They're together, but blank. And God, not content to live in perpetual avoidance and painful silence, says this in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel doesn't know. My people don't understand. This is God saying, look, an ox gets it, a donkey gets it. Two of the most impersonal, obstinate, unrelational animals he could have chosen. Even they get it, but my own people, the people that I led through the sea, the people that I led into the land, the people with whom I have a deep history, they don't even get me, they don't know me anymore. From our corner booth, you try to capture the eye of anybody else who comes in the front door, wondering if they will relight the fire that's burned low inside, and I'm right here, God says. Then God talks about their dating life in verse 13 of Isaiah 1. He says, bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocations. This is everything he told them to do back in Leviticus. And he says, I don't want it anymore. I can't endure iniquity and solemn assembly. And he pushes further. He says, your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. In other words, you can keep the presence, you can keep the pageantry, you can keep the performance. I want you. You hear God's deep ache for his people under there. Side note, I think it does us really well to consider and reflect on the emotional life of God. But then it's like God catches his breath. And in Isaiah 1.18, he says this. He says, come now, let us reason together. <laughs> Which is like, okay, 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 okay just stop. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. In a dizzying emotional turn, you can almost imagine God lowering his voice, sliding forward in his chair, trying to lock eyes with his distant and disconnected people. He moves closer and invites them to believe. He says, one day, all this distance between us is going to be gone. One day, all this darkness is going to turn into light. One day, we're going to be together again. Something is coming. Interestingly, Isaiah is often called the gospel of the Old Testament because the darkened cloud of God's judgment always seems somehow tinged with the gleaming brightness of his hope. And you see it here, don't you? But the real question emerges, though, because now the people are going, all right, God, you've got my attention. Okay. If neighboring kingdoms come and conquer us, are you still good? Does your judgment mean your rejection, God? What about this heir to David's throne? Because we haven't seen him and you promised us, and so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah, with his feet firmly planted in the here and now, but also looking into the far future, says this very familiar Christmas time text, Isaiah chapter 9, you can turn there if you like, or you can follow along. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, for the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, those are two tribes, 
But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So something's happening in Galilee. And then he just bursts into poetry, which of course you know I kind of like. He says, the people who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You've multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Like, no more war. Oh, gosh. Why? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called. And here they come. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Though today is swallowed in shadow, light is coming. So, for today, let's put a magnifying glass over that word, mighty God. Hebrew language, which is most of the Old Testament, is written in Hebrew. The Hebrew language is a complicated one. Anybody speak Hebrew? It's a fun one. It's a beautiful language, but it's weird for our, like, modern American eyes, right? First off, it reads the other direction. It doesn't go this way, it goes this way. Also, the characters don't even look right. They just look kind of like squiggles. When you hear somebody speak Hebrew, you're like, that sounds like that's based on a dare. I can't even understand what you're saying. But it's actually a really beautiful language. If New Testament Greek is written in precise, specific words, which it is, and it sounds like a lawyer invented it, Paul, the lawyer, wrote in Greek. Old Testament Hebrew sounds like it was invented by a watercolor artist. It's a completely different set of a brain. It just sounds different. Colors show up on canvas, and they just kind of do their own thing. Let's put red, and let's put yellow in here, and then, whoa, orange comes up. Greek, like English, is concerned with how words fit together. So like meanings and phrases and words. Hebrew, by contrast, is concerned with how words feel together. But enough linguistic theory. Let's get to the text. These four titles, four two-word smash-ups, blots of color on a blank canvas, where this and this come together and make something new and beautiful. Two words here, mighty God. Actually, they're the reverse in Hebrew, God mighty. So let's start with the first one, God. Hebrew word is El. Not surprisingly, that word is used all over the, New, or the Old Testament 235 times. And in every case, it's used to mean someone who's divine, someone who's higher than me, someone who's holier than I could ever imagine myself being, someone different than me. Not God-like, but God himself. Moses captured this idea when, with the Red Sea behind him, he said this. He said, the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. In his parting words, when he turned back to bless his people, he says, there's no one like our God. He rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies with majesty. Job, who got a front row seat to God's sovereignty, (laughs) saw a lot that we would rather not see, had this insight to say about this God. He says, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. And then God actually questions Job rhetorically and says, can you answer me 
Do you have an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? I think it's worth saying that this vision of God is lost, really, in, I think, in our day. I don't mean on paper. I mean in practice. I think if most of us, if we were pressed, is God mighty? You'd go, yeah, yeah, he's mighty. Is God high and holy? Yeah, yeah. Is God great? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think most of us, a lot of times, I think we kind of want a God who will just do a better job explaining himself. (laughs) Why does he act the way that he does? Why does he do the things that he does? Why doesn't he do what I think he should do? And as hard as this is for me to accept, God does not have to explain himself. Not this God. He's the supernatural being in whom all the universe originates by whose word planets were flung and at whose command every molecule in existence came. Psalm 104.14, he causes grass to grow for the cattle. You think about that? He causes it to grow. He doesn't watch it grow. He causes it to grow. Leaves, looking outside this time of year, leaves don't fall because of gravity. Leaves don't fall because it got cold. Leaves don't fall because of frost. Leaves fall because he designed them to do it, and he sees every one of them. His creativity formed the final fiber that holds on until the breath of winter blows it away. He does not have to explain himself to me. He wouldn't be God if he did. It's what made Chesterton famously quip, the riddles of God are better than the solutions of man. (laughs) But let's not mistake his immensity for his inattentiveness. He is never distant. He is always interested in his people. Now, why this high and glorious view of God? Why does this matter and what does it have to do with Christmas? If Christmas is about celebrating this one-day king that would come, it's not because he's a cute addition to the nativity on the coffee table. It's not because we just like seeing his name on slides and singing his name in songs. If he's worth anything, it's because he's at the center of everything. So that's the first word on this canvas, God. Okay, how about the second word, mighty? This is a distinctly masculine word. It's used 160 times in the Old Testament, and it means strong one, powerful, and intriguingly, warrior. We'll come back to that one. File that away for a minute. The word is El Gabor. Gabor, mighty. Sounds like something from Thor Ragnarok, like Gabor. It's like this strong, masculine word. Now, here's the sweet sauce, though. That word, Gabor, is a comparative word. Think about this with me. You only know how strong someone is. You only know how able someone is, how mighty someone is, what kind of a warrior they are. When they're compared with someone who is not those things. Do you know anybody who is not what they wish they could be. This is Isaiah imagining a parade of kings. All of us there. Kings with their 
kingdoms, their entourages, this one-day king yet to come, still 700 years in the future, he stands out among them all. There's something about him that is different. This is someone who is what I am not and can do what I cannot. He is strong where I am weak. He is able where I am unable. He can do something that I need done desperately but cannot do it for myself. Thinking of this king and his might, author and theologian Paul David Tripp invites us to consider this. I'm just going to read this to you. I would say it better if I could. He says it great. Here's what he says. This king is not weakened by what weakens us. He is not confused by what confuses us. He does not suffer from the mood swings that afflict us. He is not afraid like we are. He never makes a bad decision. He never finds himself out of control. He never regrets the way he's behaved. He never responds impulsively. His choices are never driven by anxiety. He never dreads the next day. He never wants to give up. He's never frustrated by an inability to make a difference. He is with us. But the reason this is so wonderfully comforting is that he is so unlike us in every way. He is limitless in power. He has authority over everything. He is perfect in every way. Now that's the blending of these two words. God, mighty. Mighty God. This is the kind of king that God's people are supposed to look for and expect. So who is he? For this, what I want to do is I want to park Isaiah right here. And I want to jump about 800 years in history's timeline to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If Isaiah 9 is the long-range view of looking at this king through a telescope, he's far away. (laughs) Ephesians 1 is the up-close microscope. Isaiah prophesied about a king who was to come, and Paul talked about everything that this king would do. And, I mean, this is just me. Ephesians 1 is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. There's so much wealth in Ephesians 1. And Paul... He's a church planner, he's a pastor, and so when he has to talk about who this king is, he does it with the heart and perspective of a pastor. And so I kind of want to just like hide behind his words for his church and just go like, here, just look. Here's what he says. Let's take a look, starting in verse 16. Talking to the church in Ephesus, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Well, how are you praying, Paul? How are you praying for this church? He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and have revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay, so he's praying that we would know him. What does that mean? And then here it comes, verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know, three things. What is the hope to which he has called you? His hope that never fades. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, which is never cash? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those of us who believe? That last phrase, do you hear the echo of Isaiah 9? The immeasurable greatness of his power. And so I want to focus on that. Mighty God. Then comes this giant run-on sentence in verse 20. What kind of power? 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's to be named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Doesn't he sound like a lawyer? He just goes and goes and goes. He's got so much language. He just wants to spill out See, I want you to know this power that raised Christ from the dead. So I want to take the next 10 minutes this morning. I want to focus on those four verses. Because in those four verses are four ways that God shows his power toward us who believe. And I offer them to you this morning for two reasons. One, because experience tells me that I am prone to forget them. And you might be the same way. Two, because I believe that this is the kind of God that our world desperately needs to be introduced to. Truth number one, Jesus is stronger than death. That's right there in verse 20. Look at it again. What kind of power? Power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And this power, he says, is at work in us who believe. Now here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that death doesn't happen. Believers die, same as non-believers do. Death still happens. Death is never natural. It is never normal. And so Paul isn't advocating for some sort of cosmic denial, saying, oh, come on, cowboy up for Jesus. It's going to be okay. Just paint a smile on and say, it's all good. No, that's not what he's saying. Physical death is not natural. Physical death is painful. Physical death is worthy of mourning. And just to push it a little bit further, Christmas time, for many of you, is a time where you think about the person who's not there. Physical death is painful. And so if our mighty God is stronger than death, what does this even mean? Great question. Glad you asked. Here's what this means and what it has to do with Christmas. Christmas is where we celebrate Jesus' incarnation, his birth. His incarnation, though, points to our salvation, his death. What kind of a king dies? What kind of a victory strategy is that? But it's Jesus' resurrection where God turns the question mark of Calvary into an exclamation point. (laughs) And it's what prompts Paul to say in a taunting tone, death, where is your sting? Here's what this means. For the Christian, the moment you close your eyes in this world, you open them in the next. For the Christian, the moment of death, you are more alive than you have ever been. For the Christian, God's power starts at salvation and never stops. I've officiated enough funerals to know one thing. There is a massive difference in that room when the person who passed knows the Lord. Yes, there's mourning, but there's also genuine laughter and joy. There's grief, but there's also the hope of reunion. There is sorrow, but there is also certainty. Yes, death hurts in all of its forms. Death is always unnatural. No, it is never good. But for the Christian, death is not our end. We celebrate a mighty king who was born, a mighty king who died, and a mighty king who rose. And so we ourselves are born, and we ourselves will die. But in Christ, we will rise. 
our mighty God is stronger than death. Truth number two. Jesus has secured our identity. Back to verse 20. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So not only is death done, but Jesus is seated. Now what does that mean? Paul's using ancient throne room imagery here. Here's all you need to know. Nobody sits in the presence of a king. The minute you enter a throne room, you are standing because it is disrespect at best, disloyalty at worst. Nobody sits in the presence of the king unless you are the king. This harkens back to Psalm 110 that says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies a footstool. This is Paul taking the mighty God of Isaiah 9, the seated king of Psalms, and just saying, it's Jesus. He's the, he enjoys the secure seat of single authority. But here's what this means for Christmas. Think about this with me. In his incarnation, God became vulnerable. I can't think of a more vulnerable picture than a baby born to an impoverished couple in a small town wrapped up in clothing scraps. Vulnerability is scary, and it means exposure. Vulnerability freaks me out, and I say that because I know some of you feel vulnerable too. You feel vulnerable to pain, you feel vulnerable to being taken advantage of, and you feel exposed But just listen to this. If you could slide down to Ephesians 2, it says this. He raised him up and seated us with him. What does that mean? It means that the same power that keeps Jesus seated in God's presence will keep you there too. Like Jesus, this world may hurt you. Like Jesus, this world will take advantage of you. It may label you and libel you, but for the Christian, this world can never define you. For the Christian, this world does not get to say who you are. For the Christian, your identity rests securely in the hand of the securely seated king of the universe. You are who he says you are. Before Christ, you are more sinful than you'd ever imagined, but in Christ, you are more forgiven than you'd ever dared to dream. Our mighty God has secured our identity. Truth number three. This is where it gets a little spicy and where I really like it a lot. Jesus has conquered all darkness. Now, for Paul, it's not enough just to talk about Jesus' position, saying he's seated. He wants to talk about his position in relation to everything else. Here's what he says. Verse 21. Far above all rule and authority, power, dominion, above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Now, what is with that list? Last January, we did a teaching series on spiritual warfare called Not Today, Satan. The idea was everything, every element you need to know about spiritual warfare starts with one basic truth, that battles may rage, but the war is already over. That our enemy has suffered a mortal wound from which he will not recover. And there is no ruler, political, physical, spiritual, whatever, that can compare with our king. He is above them all. His foot is on their neck. They are his footstool. 
Now, all right, Christmas. I have seen a lot of Christmas cards. Some of you send Christmas cards. They're great. I love them. That is a generational thing, by the way. If you're under 40, we should probably start sending Christmas cards. Let's not lose that tradition in our world. Anyway, Courier and Ives and Slaves and Holly, angels, wise men, shepherds, stars, cows and sheep. But because Jesus is our conquering king, I want to give you another view. This comes out of Revelation chapter 12. I heard, a, and a great sign appeared in the heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown on her head was 12 stars. She was pregnant. She was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in the heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his, you're like, where are we going now? His tail swept down a third of the stars out of heaven and cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. Well, that's an interesting idea. Verse 7. War arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, Messiah, has come. For our accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their own lives even to death. Now, I have never seen a Christmas card like that. <laughs> kind of makes me want to make one. So if you're a graphic designer in here this morning, let's talk. But in the voice of a Christmas time hero, Jack Skellington, what is this? <laughs> this is what we didn't see. This is the behind the scenes of that deep and dreamless sleep of quiet town, little Bethlehem. This is Marvel movie meets The Hobbit meets like 80s heavy metal rock cover. Like as weird as this Christmas story might look, here's why it's important. When Jesus was born, our mortal enemy saw it as an irrevocable sign of his soon-to-be destruction. That head-crushing promise from Genesis 3 was 30 years away from the manger. Just a blip in time. For us, that means that the raging angers of this world are the death throes of powers soon undone. For the Christian, the enemy is nothing to fear. For the Christian, darkness may wail, but it will never win. For the Christian, think about this. This life is the only point in our existence when we will ever know fear. Our mighty God has conquered darkness. Truth number four, and after this we'll close and we're gonna move to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Truth number four, Jesus now rules over all things. Paul extends that rule even further. Verse 22, he put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Two-word phrase used twice in those verses. All things. All things. Even the things that don't make any sense? Yep. All things. Even the things that seem terrible? Yep. 
Even when politics don't swing my way? Yep. Even when schools don't teach what you think they should teach? Yep. Still sovereign. Even when someone cuts you off in traffic and inflames your anger? Yep. Still sovereign. God is always sovereign, and that sovereignty is not limited to only what I can understand. Pastor and author John Piper imagines a list like this. God is sovereign over history, over human beings, over powers, disease, disability, all nature, weather, hurricanes, lightning bolts, tornadoes, volcanoes, earthquakes, floods, global warming, all businesses and industry, healthcare, sports, inventions, media, internet, military might, governments, presidents, kings, chiefs, religions, universities, solar systems, stars, galaxies, molecules, atoms, subatomic particles, and 10,000 things no man has yet discovered Jesus is now head over all of them. Conscious, active, authoritative ruler. Here's how I'd summarize that idea. If he isn't sovereign over all of it, he's not sovereign over any of it. Now what does that have to do with Christmas? Christmas morning is not about the birth of a baby. Just that. Christmas morning began the inauguration of a ruling king. Now, what about all this? Two-word prophecy from Isaiah, apostle's letter to a first-century church. 2,000 years later, what do we do with this? Here's how I would define God's power and God's might. I think there's three aspects. God's unique ability, his unique ability to meet my greatest need in his way, his timing, for his glory. God's unique ability, what that means is that no one else can do for me what God can do for me. I can't do for me what I need done. Nothing can anybody else. Nothing can fill my need like he can. When Augustine said, my heart is restless until it finds rest in thee, that's what he means. God's unique ability to meet my greatest need. If somebody asked you, what is your greatest need? There's one answer. Sin. Darkness. The fact that I broke up with God over and over again and he didn't deserve it. God's unique ability to meet my greatest need, his way, his timing for his glory. Now, here's what I want us to do with this. and I'll be as direct as I can as your pastor. This Christmas, I do not want you to just admire him as a baby. I want you to know him as a savior. A baby in a manger is nice. It's cute, delicately placed in the center of the nativity, but we were not created as decorators who need to admire something cute. We are created as worshipers who need to praise someone who is sufficient. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.